You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. I'm here with uh, Dan Koppel. Um, basically, you're Mr. Banana, I guess, and um, we're going to start off this whole new year talking about bananas. Thanks for coming on to the Big Trade Series. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So um, let's talk about theology for a sec, and let's go all the way back to the Old Testament and talk about this Adam and Eve story. So imagine if we're spectators here and we're hanging out with Adam and Eve or we're observing what they're doing. In their hands, they're standing right next to the Tree of Wisdom. What are they holding, Dan? Is that an apple or is it something else that they have in their hands? Well, it's, it's to me, and, and I'm a banana guy, I'm going to say it was a banana. Now, if you talk to the pomegranate people, uh, they might have a different answer. And um, the apple folks have, a, uh, have an answer, too. But, I, you know, it's important to say that, that you, know, I, you know, this is not actually a theological question to me. I mean, that's, that's something apart, and what people believe is important, and, and I'm not really talking about that. Yeah. I'm looking more... At Scripture as environmental history. Um, okay. And, and so if you look at the Garden of Eden, to me what that represents is a time before we emerged into communities. Okay. Um, Adam and Eve are hunter-gatherers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, um, they find whatever they want in the garden and they take it, they eat it. But once they discover the tree of knowledge, once they bite into the banana or the apple, um, God casts them out, and, and, they, and they are forced to till the earth. They become farmers. And so farming is what makes us into a civilization. You know, with farming, we have to stay put, meaning we have to develop laws and language. Um, we have to cooperate with each other. We have to have a body of knowledge. And so to me, the reason I say it's the banana in the Garden of Eden is we know that the banana was the first cultivated fruit. There's no question about that. And it is the fruit... Um, that that does come out of the jungle, come out of this sort of garden where we're hunting and gathering, and and does appear, um, you know, in ancient traces in the archaeological evidence as, as the first fruit that is grown in these ancient communities. So you know that's that's one side of it. When I say the banana is the apple in the Garden of Eden, um, it's because the banana makes more sense as the first cultivated fruit. And if you look at the story of the Garden of Eden as actual history, uh, that makes sense too. The other issue, of course, is that the apple wasn't known that well to, to um, the, the people who wrote the Bible, um, or, or who, who the ancient peoples of the Bible, let's say. And we know that the apple only started appearing um, as the fruit in the Garden of Eden around uh, the time of the Renaissance, when painters began painting the apple. And, and that's pretty much because of a mistranslation uh, of the Greek and Hebrew word for fruit. So we're pretty sure an apple wasn't that fruit. And so the question is, what was it? And the banana ends up being the fruit by default because it was the first fruit that we grew. So what a way to start off the year, Dan. I'm sure the audience is listening in and wondering, why the heck are we talking about bananas in the Garden of Eden? So let's try to fast forward this all the way to present day and put some context to this, and then maybe we can jump back to the early 1900s. I think one of the key sure. reasons why we're talking about this interesting commodity right now is um, many people don't recognize that bananas are probably um, the most one of the most consumed uh, fruits in the whole world. And 
it's even probably more consumed than apples and oranges combined. And um, it's probably the cheapest uh, fruit that you'll find at the grocery store. And there seems to be a potential uh, fungal outbreak that is happening known as Panama disease. Perhaps you could give some context to all of this and what's happening right now and why um, both business people, investors, and I guess just fruit and banana lovers should be um, aware about what's happening right now. Right. Well, the banana is, is without a doubt the most important fruit in the world. Um, it is important as a uh, you know, multi-multi-billion dollar commercial crop. As, as, as you, you pointed out, bananas are consumed more than apple, orange, apples and oranges put together. Um, it is also the most grown fruit in the world, and so it is also a very important crop for people who depend on it for the nutrition. So uh, any way you look at it, whether you're looking at it from a business standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, from a, a cultural, uh, nutritional standpoint, the banana stands above all other fruit as, as the most important fruit crop um, that we have right now, and, and it has been for a long time. The commercial banana is deeply threatened as a crop, and that is, as you mentioned, because of a fungal blight that has been spreading around the world and has been destroying the commercial banana crop um, in country after country and continent after continent. And right now, it represents a great threat to the commercial banana crop that we um, that feeds most of the people who eat bananas in the United States and Europe. Um, those are bananas that are grown in Latin America, South and Central America. And although the disease has not hit that area yet, there's no question that it's on the way, and the banana industry has so far not been able to do much about it. Oh, interesting. So um, what, what do you think is the, the impact that could potentially happen with uh, Panama disease for this one breed of um, banana that's been very popular. I, I believe it's uh, pronounced uh, Cavender dish or something like that. How do how would I pronounce it? There there are a thousand different banana varieties in the world, yeah. but the only one that is grown commercially um, on any great scale, the only one that is grown for export, um, is the Cavendish. Yeah. Um, what kind of impact could it have? All we have to do is look at history to find out. The Cavendish is actually the second commercial banana. Yeah. Um, the first commercial banana was a different breed called the Gromichel. Mm -hmm. It was introduced around 1900, and it was also hit by a version of this Panama disease. And by 1960, the Gromichel was virtually extinct, and the major banana companies, uh, Chiquita and Standard Fruit, which is now called Dole, mm -hmm. um, were on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, People, you know, thousands and thousands of jobs were on the verge of being lost. Thousands of acres of cultivated land were being laid fallow. Uh, and it was only almost by accident that this Cavendish banana was found and adopted. It resisted this disease. But unfortunately, it turns out that a new strain of the disease has emerged that the Cavendish doesn't resist. And, and just like historically, there's very little that can be done about it. Um, the banana industry was pretty much watched itself go nearly go under um, over the first 50 years of, of the 20th century, and it may be looking at history repeating itself now. So, so you're saying that there is a possibility that the current banana that everyone knows of uh, could potentially become extinct? 
I, I would say functionally extinct. So, okay. so there'll never be a time when this banana doesn't grow, but right. you have to grow on a huge, huge scale. Yeah. And because this disease um, makes it impossible to grow bananas in any place where the land has been contaminated, and that land cannot be decontaminated, the banana industry is facing a very similar situation. When this disease hit early on, um, for the original Grow Michelle banana, uh, it literally chased the banana industry across continents. Um, one plantation would go bad, so they moved down the road. That that district would go bad, so they moved to the next next district. A country would go bad, so they moved to the next country. Wow. And so the banana industry was chased all around South and Central America, and that has already happened in other parts of the world with the Cavendish. The question is, where will the banana industry grow? Yes, there's plenty of room um, to grow more bananas, but that would mean cutting down virgin rainforests, it would mean environmental damage, it would mean political issues. So the real question is, you know, what's going to happen? Um, I think what's going to happen is this disease will hit. We don't know when. Um, we can talk about that in a second if you want. But once it does hit, um, the banana industry will be forced to find new places to grow. The price of bananas will go up. Bananas are known as the cheapest fruit in the supermarket. The business model is cheapness. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much the only business model. Once the price of bananas starts to go up, it's a real big question as to whether the banana industry can sustain itself um, on, on many, many levels. So let's give the audience some additional context because I've heard one um, uh, interesting analogy of comparing um, like the bananas that everyone's eating is almost like what McDonald's is doing, which is what you've described as this mass consumption and uh, the usage of like monocultures around the world to, um, I guess, grow and cultivate this kind of I, what you I think I've heard you describe as almost like a, a very low grade banana. Um in, in terms of, of, like, history, for example, and just going back into the past, everyone's heard about, like, banana republics. What What's the relationship there? I'm sure, like, could you kind of, like, just guide us from, um, you know, all of these disputes with banana republics and how it eventually led to the Grow Michelle? Sure. So let, let's talk about the, the business model for bananas. Yeah. And, and, and in a way, it's a business miracle. Um because the banana, even from day one, you know, when it's introduced into the U.S. in the late late uh, 19th century, the goal was to make it the cheapest fruit in the supermarket. It's really crazy if you think about it. Bananas are very perishable. Everyone knows that. They only last a couple of weeks at most on your counter. They have to be shipped under refrigeration from great distances. So how is the banana industry going to be able, when it's starting, to sell cheaper than apples, which are grown in almost every state in the United States, don't require a lot of maintenance, don't require shipping, that's for sure, in, in boats. Mm -hmm. um, and yet the banana is half the price of apples then and today. And, and the way the banana companies do this is um, through really two strategies. One strategy is focusing on a single product. So I always say, don't look at bananas as the product of a farm. Look at them as a product of a factory that happens to have its machinery growing in the ground. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they focus on just one product to keep things super cheap. Um, it's just like McDonald's focusing on a hamburger. Uh, another really good analogy is, is Volkswagen in the early days, focusing just on the Volkswagen Beetle. Right. They have these huge economy of scales by just focusing on one breed of banana. Right. Um, and or at like the same the time, Ford, they have to keep like the Ford prices. Model T. Right, the Ford Model T is another good example. Yeah. And so the 
they have to keep prices down another way too, and that's by controlling the costs of land and labor. And to do that, they start becoming very brutal. The term banana republic means a country in Central or South America that is literally controlled by the banana industry, often with the help of the United States government. And about 25 times in the 20th century, um, governments are overthrown at the behest of the banana industry when workers attempt to get paid better, uh, to have better conditions, better environmental conditions, ownership of land. So you, you see this intense need to control every aspect of the production and, and, and to create a product, an industry based on a single variety, um, the monoculture. Of course, the problem with the monoculture, as almost anyone who knows anything about farming or gardening knows, is you can't put all your bananas in one basket because when your bananas get sick, they all get sick. The, the amazing uniformity of the banana is what makes it so cheap, what makes it so ubiquitous, what makes the industry so successful. At the same time, it also makes it very, very vulnerable. And so... The banana industry has steadfastly refused to break the monoculture and introduce variety, which I think is the only answer they have, mm -hmm. um, because it doesn't understand how to do it, really. Um, you know, it took, uh, you know, again, looking at the Volkswagen Beetle, um, they finally introduced you know, multiple kinds of cars, front-wheel drive, different varieties, only after Japanese cars began appearing and hurting their market share. Um, so far, nobody has come up with a, a, a killer fruit that's going to get the banana industry uh, to, to, to figure it out. So they instead are facing with a fruit killer that might force them to finally diversify. So, so Dan, I have a lot of uh, potential gold bugs that are listening to this episode as well. And I, I've heard of the story in which um, early, I guess, discoverers were trying to find gold and instead they found banana as a good trade. So could you... Tell that story for for the audience. Right, right. It's a great it's a great story. Um, uh, there was a Cape Cod sea captain. Um, this was in the 1870s. His name was Lorenzo Dow Baker, and um, he took his schooner to Venezuela, um, went downriver with his um, crew, and they went looking for gold. Um, unfortunately, uh, they didn't find any. So when they began, uh, you know, dejectedly to sail back towards the United States. Um, their ship, which was by then in terrible condition, and they were pretty broke, um, broke down in Jamaica. Uh, they docked in Jamaica, and in order to finance repairs on his ship, Baker decided that he might just try to load his ship up with some bananas, uh, make it back to port in the United States, and see if he could sell them. It was a total desperation move. Uh, this was a sail-driven schooner. Bananas... You know, to, let, to make that seven-day voyage from Jamaica to the um, to Massachusetts, where they came, uh, was almost impossible for them to remain intact. But he had good wind, cold weather, and, and lo and behold, the bananas arrived, and they were just successful enough, uh, just good enough, to sell. Uh, and so Baker began this very small banana export business. He was soon noticed by a gentleman named Andrew Preston, and Preston was a grocery clerk, and he said, hey, I can sell more of these fruits. We just got to get more of them. And they came up with this uh, business idea. The company they founded was called Boston Fruits. It um, later spread nationally and became United Fruits. And today, the name of that company is Chiquita. Wow. So, Dan, um, when did bananas start to become really popular in America? I know that they kind of were had a reemergence through the banana split as well. But when, when did... Uh, the banana become basically a household fruit. 
Well, it was it, it, the banana was known to early Americans in, in the colonial times um, and in, in the 1800s, but it was actually considered uh, a taboo fruit because of its shape. Believe it or not, um, right. proper ladies were not allowed to eat bananas. Um, <laughs> uh, and if you look at the old um, etiquette books; they talk about ways to cut the bananas to obscure its shape. And of course, by the time you finish handling the banana like that, it's all Soft. brown and no good anyway. Yeah. So, so. And it was introduced in 1876 in the annual exhibition in Philadelphia. And not long after that, uh, Burr and, and Preston began their business. And um, one of the things they did besides this business model of selling bananas cheap was to teach people about bananas. Mm -hmm. uh, so for to combat this taboo, um, they issued thousands and thousands of promotional postcards showing proper ladies holding bananas, uh, making them uh, okay for moms to serve to their children. Right. They more or less invented product publicity. Um, they hired doctors to say that bananas were part of a good breakfast. They right. invented the cereal box um, insert coupon, um, paying Kellogg um, and milk companies to include coupons for milk and cereal if you bought a bunch of bananas. Um, they, at the same time, they developed huge, huge communications and transportation networks. Um, the first tropical radio networks were created by the banana companies because getting bananas onto the ship really quick so they'd arrive ripe in the U.S., um, just ready to ripen in the U.S., was really important. So um, you needed radio communications. This had never been done in agriculture before, this idea of, of in, you know, integrating technology. Um, to maximize their profit because uh, the margins were so low, uh, they, they created these freighters that on the way uh, down to Central America, they couldn't be empty, that was too expensive, so they would become cruise ships. And then those cruise ships would be quickly converted into cargo ships for the trip up. The cruise ships were air-conditioned with the very ice they used to keep the bananas cool on the way up. So these guys were innovative um, in, in many, many ways. It was it was really a genius businessman, and they, like I said, they were also brutal. Um, they yeah. they killed people, they murdered people, they overthrew governments. So they stopped at nothing um, to to in their hunger to make this business work, and they did make it work. So Dan, um, for anyone that's uh, listening to this, they're going to say, "Hmm, there's going to be probably a lot of disruptive changes that could potentially be happening." in the industry going forward. I don't know if you've thought about or identified any interesting business or investment opportunities that could emerge of this. Like, for example, when I look at other commodities that would be available, I could argue that, hey, you know, th there could be some major impacts on the supply and demand um, curve for some of these commodities. And therefore, I might look into the futures market for something like this. But bananas is a little different. So, uh, I don't know if anything's crossed your radar yet. Well, I think the two big opportunities here, um, one would be in promoting banana variety. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting that, that, that we only have one real banana variety. There are a couple of other, you know, there are mini bananas, there are red bananas, but about 99.9% .9 of the world's export banana market is Cavendish. Right. And Cavendish is a terrible banana. Right. Um, it's one of the worst tasting bananas you can find. Um, but it does resist disease uh, to a certain extent, as we're learning. It is fairly tough and therefore easy to ship. So the question is, is there, you know, with these other better tasting banana varieties, is there a market for them? Now, 
The only thing I can say is look at the apple and the citrus market. When I was a kid, I'm 54, we only had two kinds of apples, green ones and red ones. Mm -hmm. We had navel oranges in the, in the winter and juice oranges in the summer. Mm -hmm. If you go to any supermarket in the United States now, you'll see 20 kinds of apples, 20 kinds of citrus. There is There are bananas that if I describe their taste to you, I would sound like a wine critic um, in their complexity. And there is a demonstrated desire on the part of America, which is uh, Americans, which have become more sophisticated about food for different tastes. And so somebody needs to figure out how to get these alternate varieties to the United States. The banana industry has failed to do that because they're stuck in their monoculture mindset. Right. Even now, as they look for replacement for Cavendish, they're really looking for just a replacement for the commodity banana. In other words, they're looking for a, a monoculture to replace the monoculture, and they're going to end up in the same place um, in 20 or 30 years after they, they replace our banana. So it's a big, it's a big job. Um, right now, though, you know, the, the issues are how do you ship an alternate banana? How do you package it? How do you grow it? It most likely would have to come initially from places like the Philippines or India. Right. That's about a week long in shipping. Yep. So there need to be advances in container technology. Mm -hmm. But... Those who say it's impossible, um, I would remind them that um, Chiquita almost went bankrupt because they said the Cavendish was not shippable. It right. could, would not work with American consumers. And it took Dole, which then was a small entrepreneurial company, um, to say, no, we can do it. And Dole went from about a 10% market share in bananas to 50%, where it stayed to this day. So that company made its business on outsmarting Chiquita, which said it couldn't be done. So for those who say alternate banana varieties can't be done, I say it has been done, and it can be done again. So um, yep. I'd say the second biggest business opportunity is looking at ways to fight this fungus. The fungus is called Fusarium, and it's a very common fungus. Um, varieties of it affect everything from wheat to tomatoes. Um, it even has been known to con uh, contaminate machinery like uh, contact lens fluid a few years ago. If you remember, there was a recall of that. Yeah. So it's very difficult to figure out ways to identify um, different fungi and then to mitigate them. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of work going on in academia now about how to do that, but it hasn't been commercialized yet. Fungus is a tough thing. It's much harder to beat a fungus than a bacteria, um, but but... I think more and more um, we're learning that we need to come up with effective strategies and products that, that, will, um, that will identify and, and hopefully um, eradicate some of these funguses. Excellent. So, Dan, let's finish this off by um, um, inquiring about some of your tastes of bananas, because I'm assuming you must be quite the banana connoisseur, right? So, uh, two questions here is um, do you ever eat the banana peel? And I've heard there's merit in doing that. And secondly is what would be some of the more interesting and exotic bananas that I could actually go around the world and taste? Right. So, so as to the banana peel. Okay. Uh, to peel or not you know, to this, peel? This is a room. <laughs> I mean, the past year or so, I've started getting banana peel questions. And I just want to say, I don't care like what you read, who says it, do not eat banana peels. You know, they're not going to kill you, um, although certainly bananas that are conventionally grown, the peel is going to con uh, contain more pesticide than the interior of the banana, right. so I wouldn't eat it at that level. And I don't believe there's any nutritional value in a banana peel, okay. but if there is, 
It's about the same value as you find in the tongue of your athletic shoe. And I'm not telling wow. you to eat your shoes, and I'm not telling you to eat your banana peels. It's right. just not worth it, folks. Don't do it. So <laughs> uh, it, it's going to be so hard to digest, you're going to hate it. But but um, And I'm convinced that anyone who has eaten a banana peel once will never eat one again. It, it's, um, funny. it's funny you said that, Dan, is because you know there's this big trend now for people that are collecting athletic uh, sneakers to actually lick the um, uh, the bottom of their shoe, so it's interesting that the the emergence of these eating of banana peels is actually coinciding with this new trend as well. Well, if you're if you're if you're a shoe licker, then I can encourage you to eat banana peels. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'd say shoe lickers go for it. Everyone else, stay away. Okay. <laughs> As far as banana varieties, yes, um, yeah, I've tasted probably 150 to 200 uh, banana varieties. Mm-hmm. Um, many banana varieties are only found in in villages uh, in India, in in Thailand, um, in Vietnam. They don't even have official names. They haven't okay. necessarily been cataloged. But the one banana I love the most um, okay. is one I found in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, it's called uh, Ibota Ibota, which in Swahili means very, very fertile. Okay. And it's called that because the banana produces incredible amounts of fruit, maybe up to 200 fruits per bunch. Right. Um, it's a banana that's thicker than the traditional banana we eat. Okay. It's not as long, and it's absolutely delicious. Um, it has a very complex flavor. When you start to bite into it, it's almost a sour um, apple or pear-like taste. Mm-hmm. And then once you get into the flesh, it's very sweet and creamy, almost like um, the best banana ice cream you ever had. It's got a very nice texture. It's not mushy, um, but it's not it's not hard like a potato. Okay. Um, and so this is a great banana. And the question is, okay, why aren't they selling this banana? Because you know, a, a really good apple can sell for three dollars a pound, while the commodity apple sells for fifty nine, forty nine cents a pound. So there's money to be made in a banana like this. Right. The problem is that Bota Ibota suffers from something we call finger drop, which means when you pull one banana off the bunch, all the other bananas fall off too, right. leaving a little section of the fruit exposed to air. And once that happens, um, the banana gets goes bad very quickly. So it's an issue, it's a packaging, shipping, possibly breeding issue of how you get those qualities from a banana like that and make it shippable. It's a, it's a difficult issue, but it's not impossible. And and so I look forward to the day when you do not need to, you know, take a plane all the way to Congo, then take a UN plane to the middle of, of, of the jungle right. and find this banana in a tiny village. I, I believe this banana will come to our um, our markets. And and I one thing I'd say any of your listeners in the United States um, who would like to try varietal bananas um, the best place to do that that's pretty easy to get to would be the big island of Hawaii. And I would go to the we- uh, farmer's market, which is held on Wednesdays um, in Kona. Okay. Uh, and you'll find there up to 10 different banana varieties uh, that are amazing and delicious. And, and you'll learn why the Cavendish is considered the worst banana on earth. Well, thank you, Dan. It's It's been a very interesting talk. Let's try to make this the year of the banana because... Right now, the stock market is going banana, so we might as well make it the year of the banana as well. Great. Thank you so much. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 